I hope all is well, despite whatever might be, right? I know my bride is battling the same headaches and migraines that many of us are, so. Yeah, for sure. So, let's open up in a word of prayer, if we are good with that. Father, we come before you only because of the blessed grace of our Lord, your beloved Son, and this blessed work of the Holy Spirit, who through your interior work of our hearts and the teaching of truth gloriously brings us to new life and the abundance that comes from being conformed right back to your beloved Son through the Spirit's sanctifying work, through the saints' insatiable desire for the Word of God to be understood and lived out, that we might honor you, our triune God, in our worship every moment of every day. And so we praise you for this first and foremost. We lift up, Lord, the countless prayers that are nestled away into our hearts for loved ones, for dear brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, the church, and the lost. And Lord, we just lift all these things up in our worship to you, praying that it would be a sweet aroma in the midst of so much that goes on in the name of religion. And Lord, we pray these things always in your ever-precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I, I had the chuckle this morning as I woke up again to this study. It's like a Chia pet. <laughs> it's like every time I go to bed, it's there, and then I wake up and the thing has grown <laughs> a whole bunch more. Um, Jeff and I wouldn't know anything about that metaphor at all. But, uh, but I've just found that, that uh, it, it just is such an important section of scripture and truth, both in the history of humanity, but in the absolute history that's unfolding right now in our lives, which is why the Word of God is living. <laughs> and so constant, and it's revealing to us uh, the things of God and the things of this world. So we've, we've this is be the fourth um, morning in this text we've hovered around Romans 1, uh, 16 through the end of that first chapter. And, um, 
we've begun to see, and I think you'll see it much more vividly after today, the centrality of our worship. And the question, what is it we're worshiping? And just how important that is to God. That has just um, taken hold of my heart in this study. The other thing is uh, the centrality of Israel in the worship in the kingdom. And how faithful he is with his promises despite us. And the, the third one, which we'll touch on this morning in particular, is what about humanity? What about humanity as a whole? And I've thought a lot about how Paul opens this beautiful book of Romans with his salutation and then the gospel. And that the power of God is the gospel. It's in the gospel. It's in the very words of the gospel, rightly divided, rightly taught, breaking down the strongholds that keep us captive up here because of what's going on in here. Right. And you realize worship is both the privilege and it is the commandment of God. I think we lose sight of that. I think we often think of it as a plea from God and it often is. But it's a plea only after he's made clear that it is a commandment. And that's what Christ did the entire time he was in his ministry. Was plead with us to believe the commandments of God. Because they are commandments. When we look at verse 18 of Romans 1... We're going to see Paul unpack both the steps that man takes to reject God and the steps that God takes to reject man. A man that is condemned already, as we saw from John 3, right? but is now going to be given over, taken the restraints that God has on him through the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the society of which we live, and he's just going to turn him over so that we can begin to see what is in truly in the heart of man. And it should begin to shed light on all these passages that we read about the heart of man. I want you to think about that because, because the way Paul opens up this passage, that, that should be part of what jumps out at us in this passage. So 
Let me just start first with verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and to the Greek, for in it the, here it comes, Ryan, righteousness of God is revealed. And there is the standard. That scale that we use is usually a scale of one man versus another man. That is the wrong scale. The scale that shuts our mouth at the end of this opening in Romans 3.19 is God's righteousness compared to us as humanity. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, and Paul picks that up in Romans 3.21, if we ever get there. From faith for faith. From Grady's faith to someone whom Grady's life is going to touch with the gospel and may come to faith long after Grady's been gone, from faith for faith. How God chose, of all the ways the powerful God could have chosen to bring to life his elect, he chose that way why we're here the simple answer right as it is written the righteous shall live by faith and we see that permeating the old testament don't we these folks that seem to think that the old testament is something entirely different than the new testament have just not erased their brains before they started reading god's word because they have imposed onto the scripture things that simply don't exist because the just shall always live by faith in the righteousness of God through the line of the promise that comes right out of Genesis 3.15. So let's just walk into 18 through 23 by first looking at 18 and 19. And we're going to move through this fairly slow. Um, but in verse 18, we see, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Just pause right there. Period, end. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Always and forever. Right? The garden. The flood. The Tower of Babel. Just keep working your mind right through what God has preserved from humanity. And you see this wrath has been revealed consistently, steadily, because Paul says, God will not be mocked. We will 
reap what we sow. And that is true for every one of us as believers, every unbeliever, and every society that has ever lived. Now you can go from the, the historical realities of the Bible, revealing to us the chosen history of humanity by God, to the very time we're living in right now. And you will understand we are living under that reaping and sowing. And in the centrality of it is how we worship God as a society and as an individual. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against <clears throat> all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, comes the cause, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And Paul's prevailing thought is no one escapes. A clear understanding that the wrath of God is everywhere. You just have to look around. But this passage of suppressing the truth is this idea of holding down something. You have to ask, what? What is being held down? And Paul gives us a clue. It's what I love about reading this book. Paul literally unpacks a thought in the very same sentence, and then in the next sentence, and then in the next chapter, and it just goes on and on. That's why he's got 17 different therefores in this book. He just keeps unpacking. It's like his head is exploding with thoughts inspired by the Holy Spirit as he's writing this entire letter. But you ask, what truth is being held down? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked because I'm about to tell you, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Who's them, first of all? Hmm? It's humanity. It's all of us. It's every human being. has seen in some way the glory of God. Every human being. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. There is a God. He is extraordinary in His power in his creativity, in his wisdom. And he is therefore what? Worthy of our worship. There's the heart of the problem. All puns intended. There is the heart of the problem. 
How can we be sure that God has shown it to them? Because Paul says explicitly, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The causal factor, if I can go there, for their suppression of the truth, kind of the, oh, no, not that. Don't tell me I'm not king of myself, God of myself. God has plainly shown it to them. And if you believe the scriptures, you can take that all the way to heaven. That there isn't a single person who does not understand that there is a creator and he is worthy of our worship. And Paul tells in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, part of the image he put in all of us, right? The tendency to love, the tendency to nurture, to care for, His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It is in the creation. The Sabbath day was a day of rest to be in the creation and explore the glory of God that we might exalt him and worship him and honor him for it, right? But it's right here where you see the personal failure of every human being that has ever breathed life. The failure to honor and worship God rightly, right? Which takes us right back to John three eighteen. why we are condemned already. And what God says in his passage is simply, I have given you every single opportunity to know that I am God and to worship me as God and you worshiped yourself. And that's the heart of what Paul is teaching in this passage with massive consequences for humanity. Having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There's the short line to Romans 3.19. Shut your mouth. Every one of you are condemned for this very reason because I have given you every opportunity. And we can trust God 
with that. I have children that I desperately love. And I can trust that God is righteous and just in his current treatment of those children. And I pray for mercy. But he's righteous and just because no one is without excuse. No one is walking around wondering. They have come to that point. They have been brought to that point where there is no doubt there is a God. And I have chosen not to worship him. And is that not where Paul goes? Look at verse 21. For although they knew God. No doubt about it right there. What's it say? They did not honor him as God. And if there's one thing I want us to take away from this study, it's right there. What are we worshiping? Because what we're worshiping and what we honor are going to tend to go hand in hand, right? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. I want to just pause right there and catch up with myself a little bit. I want to go back to verse 19 and 20. And just point out again that they are every single human being over the course of the entirety of their lives. And apart from the very moment God intervenes in their life and the Spirit of God convicts them of sin and that horrendous suffocating reality of I'm guilty as God the Father turns our hearts from that truth to the cross of his Son and says, but we have provided a way for you. That's how every one of us came to Christ. Every one of us that knows Christ came through that beautiful door of the triune God. I want you to think about this idea that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. God has made it plain to them. He's shown it to them. There is no doubt. And I want you to just bear with me for a minute. And think about those those that you could possibly organize them by certain professions. And I want you to just think about with me for just a second about those that are deeply embedded in the sciences. Higher education. The medical profession. Astronomy. 
And I want to just give you a couple little things to think about in the context of this passage. When the Voyagers went out in 1977, they went out with the purpose of exploring the ends of this universe. And what they found when they got out to what we thought was the end of the universe was the end of our galaxy. And on the outer edge of this galaxy, they found not millions of stars that they thought they would find. Anybody know what they found? Millions of galaxies, four they estimate now, four million galaxies that contain within each galaxy billions of stars. And at that point, they turned those voyagers back around and they began to look at our galaxy. And if you've not endured the beautiful documentary called The Privileged Planet, you should. Because it's what they found. That this tiny little planet is stuck in the perfect distance from its sun, little closer, little farther, you either burn up or you freeze. Last count, there are 20 absolutely essential components that exist on this planet that exist nowhere else in the universe explored. And all of them are absolutely essential to sustain life. These people look into that all day long and still say there is no God. And I would ask you the question, how do they do that? It's because the veil has been put over their hearts. And for some, that veil appears to be made of concrete. And according to the scriptures, their own name. <laughs> Thinking to be wise, they became. You see it? Thinking to be wise, they became fools because they did not honor God as God. Inside you. Best guess, and think about the relentless effort to use these sciences to deny that there is a God. All of the study of archaeology, all of the study of the genetic code, all of the study of the universe, there's a large part of that that is determined to prove that evolution is real, justified, and there is no God after all. And it seems like at every corner, God just laughs at them. By what? Showing them his glory. And each time that happens, we are more and more accountable. Inside the human body right now, are somewhere in the order of 200 different cell types, 
and I don't even know how to illustrate this number, 37 trillion human cells. And if you've never studied the complexity of just one human cell, do yourself the favor. Or go look up the flagella bacteria. Go look at the outboard motor that God designed on that little thing that basically constructs and reconstructs your entire body over time. It moves around with a tail that has an outboard motor with stunning precision, speed, and accuracy. And they just discovered it, uh, what, maybe 20 years ago now? First thing they did when they discovered it and sent all the pictures, the top 20 scientists in the world gathered at a house on the beach for spend seven to 10 days to say, what in the world are we gonna do with this? Because here's the kicker. If you remove one of the proteins that make up that tail assembly, it doesn't work. Which means it can't do its job. Which means it can't do the work of constructing this glorious unfolding of human life and everything else. It's where the term irreducible complexity comes from. Fascinating. It's this passage. Although they knew God, they stared right in the face of the most glorious expanse of God and the most microscopic creation of God, and yet denied Him. And the humbling part of this is, this is where every one of us are or were on this slide of rejecting these glorious truths. You ever notice how the creation seems to obey the laws that God has put in place? Water, which way does it run? Except for the flood, which it ran uphill, right? Look at the bugs, look at the animals, right? Even in their fallen state, they put us to shame when it comes to obeying. But why were none of us good or seeking after God? And, and that becomes the, the question. Romans 1, 21 through 23. For although they knew God. You see the ongoing state of that? almost leaves you, was there ever a point we didn't know that there was a God? Because it just says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Worship, centrality of this passage, the primary causal factor as to where we end up on this slide. <clears throat> But they became futile 
in their thinking. So right away, Paul fixes us on the what? The mind. And their foolish hearts were, comes the veil, darkened. And here's just a summary. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged, here it comes, the glory of the immortal God for everything man could create in the factory of idolatry in his heart. You want to know where all the false religions come from? All the idolatry that goes on, all of the horrendously false worship, it comes from the heart who has said, God, you're just not good enough for me. I'm going to create my own God. I don't really need you. Does that sound familiar? Feudal carries the idea of pointless. Tower Babel. <laughs> uh, we've come up with 10 million Tower Babels today, haven't we? Do you ever just listen to the stuff that is espoused as wisdom, advice, guidance? It is the Tower of Babel times 10 million. Useless. You ever think about that at the very floor of all of that ideology is the idea that man is inherently good? And if I can just build on that, because it's perfectly fitting with the theories of evolution and everything else. That that's, that's the doctrine. The doctrine of man is by far and away the largest stumbling block. Once we've exchanged the glory of God for the created. And that's precisely what Paul is revealing. And he uses this word feudal to think that no matter how much they think, it's useless. And it is the source of all your false religions, all of the ideologies that we see rampant We have a little girl, she's in fifth grade. She's being confronted on the playground with friends that want to ask, are you a lesbian? I'm a lesbian. I dated a girl this summer for a little while. These are fifth grade girls. This is the ideologies that are being imposed on children in order to create a generation that is absolutely godless. And our witness had better be clear. You 
It's the state of man's thoughts and the source of all the useless ideologies of a lost world, unhinged from belief in and reverence for the one true God who has revealed himself to us. What we're seeing. But you know what? There is nothing new. Have you ever studied the 17 men that were the Neros of Christ's time? 16 of them were utter perverse monsters. One of them maybe doesn't find himself worthy of that title. The rest of them are unspeakable in a place like this in mixed company. There's nothing new. Sodom and Gomorrah. Which is where we'll get to with this passage. But I also want you to see kind of at the bookends of this, this section of Scripture that we'll see two words that deal with the mind. One is futile, which is a different word that's found at the beginning of the spiral, futile in their thinking. At the end of this, we have the word what? Debased. All to do with the mind. One is useless thinking. The other is a mind that has been tested and found Useless. No more. Just turn it over. It has been tested and found useless. And this is this downward progression of God simply removing the restraints that he puts on humanity and the wickedness of his heart. The garden. Was God sovereign over what happened there? The flood. Eight people, all the rest of them, utterly tested and found what? Useless. We don't like to think about those kinds of things. But if we're not careful, they'll unhinge us from the truth of God and leave us utterly confused about the world we're living in and the way we deliver the gospel. It's interesting, debased is only used in this passage. And you see the outward condition in verse 22 of the mind and the heart being darkened, claiming to be wise, giving themselves doctorates and PhDs and writing books and teaching as if it were truth, they claim to be wise. But from heaven's perspective, they became fools. That's why God laughs. and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And I'm pretty sure he could have gone on and on and on, right? Now, I want to shift with you for a minute. And I want to take you uh, into Genesis 3. Just go to Genesis 3, 4, and I want to point out a couple of things that I think are very material 
to this notion that we're condemned already. Let's just look at what happens here. Genesis 3, 4 says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. We all know this. Satan's persuading Eve to believe. What about God? He's a liar. Boy, the minute you believe God is a liar or even partially not true, boy, what parts of Scripture do you now stand on? And I'll tell you which ones you won't stand on, the ones that most conflict with our flesh. He says, you will not surely die. Listen to this. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And boy, was he right. Beautiful illustration of how deadly Satan is when he takes lies and embeds them in truth. Because their eyes are about to be opened, but the question is, to what? At this point, what did Adam and Eve know nothing of? Evil. We can't even comprehend that, right? Cannot even comprehend the idea that we cannot even think of evil. Consider it. We don't know it. It doesn't exist. That's where Eve was. And you will be like God. Another extraordinary truth and lie. Because they will now know good and evil as God does. But it will destroy them. If it weren't for the mercy of God. He says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there it is. If we think about the consequence of this, I want you to think about the promise out of Genesis 3.15 that comes as a result of this. But let's look at the first family in Genesis 4. And let's look at verse 3 where we see in the course of time came brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Seems good enough, doesn't it? And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. You see the contrast? What is this about? Worshiping God's way or our way is exactly right. So you see, right from the beginning, God's been telling us this. It is about His worthiness of our worship. And the real question is, how are we worshiping Him? And this is where we as believers can just be so thankful for the mercy and the grace of God. Because that whole don't covet thing, don't want for anything you don't have, <laughs> pales in comparison to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, all the time. 
when we consider ourselves, right? And that's where you can just look again to the mercy and the grace of God and the blessed work of our Lord and Savior. Because every one of us, apart from this, is condemned already and on that slide. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And what was Cain's response? He was angry, shook his fist at God. And what happened to Cain? Banished. Isn't it interesting that he he just couldn't bear that thought? That God put a seal on him, that he would be banished, but yet never killed until God was ready to have that happen. (laughs) He had to live with this consequence. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. There's the command. My main point for going there is to help you see that that entire encounter was about worship. It's the entire factor in Romans 1, 18 through the end of this chapter and on. Let me throw you forward a little bit. Sorry for the start and stop, but go to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And Paul gives us this, a timeless passage for the saints in his day and the saints in our day. But understand this, that in the last days will come times of difficulty. How can Paul say that with such certainty? Because he knew Romans 1. (laughs) He knew that generational giving over that was horrific for that generation, but the next generation that inherited that giving over society, and then the next one, and then the next one is right where we are some 2,000 years later. And the ideologies just seem to become more and more precise. They creep right into the Hallmark Channel. I'm a witness. We thought we were safe with this movie. Boom, right at the end, they inserted it. Thankfully, it gave us a wonderful teaching opportunity. That's where we are. Precision and mass exposure. Time to difficulty, Paul says. How about this? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. Here's one. Disobedient to parents. 
which implies what in that child? A complete disregard for authority. And our streets are full of those kids. Our colleges are full of those kids. Our intern roles are full of those kids. <laughs> Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen and conceit, with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And there it is. How much so-called worship is going up this morning in the form of just figure out what makes you happy because that's what God wants for you. And it doesn't matter what it is. As long as you're happy, God's happy. How can that be spoken if the veil of the truth of Scripture has not just been pulled over your heart as a pastor or a teacher? Right? And then here comes exactly what Paul's teaching us in Romans 1. Having the appearance of godliness, these ideologies that appear to be so wise and right about God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What did Paul teach us is the power of God? The gospel. We deny the gospel when we lop off part of the gospel. Salvation has very little appeal to someone who has no sense of condemnation whatsoever. And that is what Paul is teaching us at the very outset of this book. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households, and boy, did Paul have no idea how that was going to happen in our day. And capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. And here's the, the vain ideologies of humanity, particularly about religion. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Why? Because way back, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So I want to read from you from a, a dear, faithful brother in Christ, James Montgomery Boyce. If you can get his commentaries on the book of Romans or everything else he's written, just... Just do it before the internet goes out. <laughs> right. He says this, man's punishment is to be abandoned by God. But of course, this is precisely what man has been fighting for ever since 
Adam's first rebellion in the Garden of Eden. What he's been fighting for. And apart from that intervening work of God, that's right where he's going to continue. Times every other person in such a state. And this is where the doctrine of man, the doctrine of election, the doctrines of atonement, these blessed doctrines that reveal what God has done to intervene in the life of these people on this downward slide is so beautiful. Because why do you think we throw our crowns in heaven? It was always God. It's always because of him. We're not even worthy to keep them. They're his, right? They're sneaking in. Let me finish. Man has wanted to get rid of God, to push him out in, of his life. In contemporary terms, he is saying, God, I just want you to leave me alone. Sound like Jesus' words to Israel, doesn't it? Leave them alone. Because there comes a time when it is God saying that. Take a seat on the chair over there. Shut up and let me get on my life as I want to live. And that's why sexual revolution is the fountainhead of this downward slide. And so God does. Like the father of the prodigal son, he releases the rebellious child, permitting him to depart with all his many passions and goods for the far country. And we're out there with them, right? So we'll come back and we'll begin this uh, verse 22, 24 slide. Um, next week, our Lord willing. So thank you.